All right, let's pray together one more time, and then we're going to open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Father in heaven, these things that we're looking at today, they're exciting things. They cause us to change our focus. They cause us to live not just in this moment, but to live in eternity and to live for eternity. I'm praying, Father, that you will use the words that John wrote down, the words that Jesus told him to make sure he didn't leave any of them out. Would you use those words to inspire us? Would you use those words to teach us? For some, this may stretch our thinking and take us places that we've never gone before in the Bible, never gone before in our walk with you. We're okay with that. Lord, take us into the heavenly realm and let us see just a small glimpse of it that we might anticipate it, long for it, desire it with all that we have and all that we are because we know that you're there and that's the best part. In Jesus' name, amen. My parents taught me a prayer when I was growing up. Yours might have taught you the same prayer. I know a number of children that didn't even grow up in the church and are familiar with these words. Take a look at them. Terry's going to put it up on the screen. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now I've said that prayer over and over and over again as I was growing up and even as our kids were growing up. We had a little lamb that Katie had that you push the the arm of it and it would recite this prayer. Listen to this again, but listen somewhat critically. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What in the world would possess any parent to teach their children this prayer? Can you imagine the accounts of childhood anxiety that come as a result of this? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Well, I might just die tonight. If I should die before I wake, there it is again. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Nothing encouraging about that. There's nothing that breeds peace in that prayer. And I had never really realized that until John Ortberg caused me to see the prayer differently. In his teaching on it, he actually shares the second verse of this prayer. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. Here it is. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span. And cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. Little children recite that before they go to bed at night. There's nothing encouraging about it. There's nothing peaceful about it. What that prayer does do, though, is it causes something inside the hearts of little kids and adults alike that makes us want to look towards heaven, that makes us realize that that's where our hope is. This type of a prayer, now I lay me down to sleep and so on, causes us to say, Lord, I am safe in your arms. It really does do that, doesn't it? I haven't heard many parents teaching children that prayer lately. Past few years, it seems like it's been lost. It's been replaced with prayers where we mention the name of everybody that we know. We pray for our pets. We pray for our teachers. We pray for our friends. And we even pray for the the wounds that we have received throughout the course of the day. I smashed my finger. Lord, please make it feel better. My toe hurts. Jesus, please make it feel better. Or my dog is sick. Jesus, please help my dog feel better. We have changed that type of prayer, an eternal focused prayer, into a momentary prayer. We're praying only about what's happening in the moments that we are living in. We've stopped praying eternally. We've stopped praying focused on heaven, and we've focused only on our lives. 
Even the part of that prayer that's very popular today where we're praying about the, the wounds that we have received, our smashed finger or our stubbed toe or our sick pet or whatever it might be, deals with the wounds of this life, but it causes us never to help anyone look at what I might refer to as soul wounds, the ones that really need healing, the ones that are really significant, the ones that Jesus came to say, I am, am the great physician that has the ability to heal those types of wounds soul wounds we just leave those out as a result of it our focus shifts from eternity into the moment we've learned how to live there very comfortably and we have put on the back burner all the teachings of heaven we've put on the back burner all the ideas of eternity in the kingdom of god and what a tragedy what a tragedy the church as a whole has been guilty of that as well we don't preach on heaven very often We just assume everybody knows about it. We assume that everybody has an understanding of what heaven is, so we don't ever bring it up. Tragedy of that is the Bible does. The Bible speaks of heaven over 500 times. 50 of those are in the book of Revelation alone. 50 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus says to John, let your focus come to rest on eternal things. Let your focus come to rest on the kingdom of God. Let your focus come to rest on heaven. That's good teaching. That's good medicine for every one of us. So this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to let our minds and our hearts and our souls come to rest heavenward. I want us to let our minds and our hearts and our souls come to rest on the kingdom of God and what it might be like. We're going to use a little bit of Revelation chapter 21 to help us do that. We don't have enough time today to go through it piece by piece, but we're going to pull out some of the major parts of it. So open your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Now, I do have to tell you this. We're going to be looking at the subject of heaven again next week. In fact, next Sunday, when we start back into Sunday school, we're going to use two weeks of Sunday school to talk more about what heaven is going to be like to answer some specific questions that have existed for people for a long, long time. This morning, we're going to be in Revelation 21. We're just going to get going into it. One of the things that we have to realize about heaven the place of heaven, the concept of heaven, the idea of heaven, is that it is actually a deep longing that has been placed within your heart. Heaven itself is a deep longing. It is a soul desire. Now, if you don't believe me, keep your finger in Revelation chapter 21 and go to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, wrote these words, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There it is, great teaching about heaven. It has been placed deep in the hearts of men and women. From the beginning of time, God has placed that mechanism within all of us. Now, there's a number of people that have tried to suppress it, They've tried to say heaven doesn't matter, heaven isn't real, heaven isn't a place that I want to be, or a place that I'll ever end up, or a place that anybody will ever end up. But the truth of the matter is, the closer they get to the end of their life, the more that deep desire begins to surface, begins to come to the the top of their heart. God designed us to operate that way. Solomon says that it has been placed in all of us that we might really want to study it. Even the church has done something that that has worked to kind of suppress the idea or the longing that God placed within us. We did things like this. The church began to teach that heaven is nothing but an eternal worship service. 
We're just going to go to church every moment of every day forever. How many of you find a lot of appeal in that? Thank you for your honesty. There's not a ton of appeal in it. I grew up in the church. I grew up knowing about heaven. I love worship. What we participated in just a few minutes ago and what we're participating in right now, I love. But it isn't something that inspires me. There's not this longing to think that I'm going to do that every moment of every day. And worse, I find myself thinking, if I have to do that, sitting on a cloud strumming a harp, wow! But the church has taught that. Those are the pictures that hang in little children's Sunday school rooms. You're on a cloud strumming a harp, worshiping Jesus every moment of every day, forever and ever and ever. And people started to lose this deep longing for heaven because of that. So some other theology began to creep up. Theology that made its way into the church, which began to teach that you don't actually have a body in heaven, so you're not actually going to be involved in worship. You're just a spirit that's floating around, part of a collective whole. People began to embrace that, saying that heaven is nothing but a place for souls. And because they can't understand what a soul is, they've left it in that realm. It's just this big place of ghosts. That's all we're ever going to be. And some people took it a step further and said that in heaven... You don't have a physical body. You're not really there. You're not a person. In heaven, you become an angel. It's horrible teaching. It's a theology and a doctrine that's made its way into many mainline churches. You become an angel in heaven. The Bible never teaches that. I challenge you to find it. Yet there's a lot of people, even within mainline Christianity, that would say that's what happens. You become an angel in heaven. Well, there's not a lot of longing in that. There's not a lot of desire in that. I've got this gigantic worship service where I'm just going to be a soul or an angel playing a harp and we're just going to sing all the time. If you don't sing on this earth, the thought of singing in heaven forever just really messes with your mind. It's a distortion of what heaven is really going to be. It is. So what we have to realize is that God placed this longing inside of all of us and longings are attached to desire. Longings are attached to the things that we anticipate the most. I can honestly tell you, I probably didn't understand that till 1987. I grew up in the church, I grew up in Christianity, but I didn't understand what a real longing was until I was sitting in a class at Manhattan Christian College, staring out the window, not paying attention to the professor of the class, and I saw Tina Nichols at the time walk across the parking lot, and I went, oh, baby, (laughs) that looks good to me. And then I started to think, I want to talk to her. I want to spend time with her. And then every day in that same class, I blew off whatever Larry Sullivan was teaching, and I looked out the window just because I knew she would be walking across the parking lot. Then I got up enough courage to go talk to her. And ever since then, there's been this longing in my heart to be with her. If we are separated for a few hours, I long to get back together with her. If we have to spend the day apart from one another, I look forward to the evening when we're going to be able to reconnect. I look forward to those times when she calls me just to see what's going on. That's a longing from deep inside my heart. When we're in a crowded room, I look forward to catching her eye and her catching mine and us looking across the room at one another. In 1987, I began to understand what this is all about. There is deep in our heart a longing for not just that type of a connection on this earth, but an eternal connection with Jesus Christ. God has placed eternity in our hearts. It's a desire to be with Him and to experience all that He has created. There is a desire deep inside of each one of us that causes us to live heavenward. Amen? 
But maybe you don't know why. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 21. We'll see what Jesus says about this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Listen to this. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There is a misconception about heaven. I've bought into it. Many of you have as well. That heaven is going to be a brand new place with totally new things that causes us to see something that we have never seen before. That when God brings the new heaven and the new earth that we heard read just a few minutes ago, it isn't going to look at all like what we are used to today. And that's not the case. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. One more time. Here it is. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That verse teaches us that heaven is all about restoration. It is all about restoring creation. Heaven is about a renewal. It isn't about a new creation. It is about the renewal of all things. People ask all kinds of different questions about heaven. They want to know what it's going to be like. Those are some of the most popular questions that ever come through a minister's office. What's going to happen to us when we die and what's heaven going to be like? Some of the questions that fall underneath that last one, what's heaven going to be like, include things like this. Are we actually going to have bodies in heaven? Are there going to be physical bodies? Because remember that new theology that teaches all we are is souls floating around in in some eternal state. People find themselves saying, well, what about our bodies? I read in the Bible about a resurrection. I read in the Bible about people receiving glorified bodies. What's that about? The answer to the question, are we going to have bodies in heaven, is emphatically yes. You will have a physical body. Let me show you how we know that. Keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 21. But go back to the Old Testament again, to the book of Job. Job chapter 19, starting in verse 26. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job teaches that even after we die, there is still a physical body that will be in the presence of the Lord. Now we could go back to the New Testament. We can see the same kinds of things. This is in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Jesus has appeared to the disciples and he says this, Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, starting in verse 1, we read this. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples, were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus until they got much closer. The resurrection body of Jesus was recognizable. He has a body. When he appears to Thomas, doubting Thomas, he will actually show him the scars in his hands and his feet. He has a physical body that appears before people. Job tells us that he will stand before God with a physical body. You will have a physical body in heaven. It is a real place, heaven is, where you will be a real person with a real body. By the way, some people think in that new body that you receive, that glorified body, there will be no scars whatsoever. 
I believe based on what Jesus taught us, there will be scars. They'll just be glorified. They'll reflect what the Lord has done for you. Just like Jesus' scars reflect what he did for us. You'll have a body in heaven. That leads people to ask the next question, and it's a really good one. Will we be able to recognize other people? Again, the answer to that question is emphatically yes. Let me tell you why I believe that. We're going to stay in the New Testament now. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You will recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We even saw that happen on this earth. This is found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter's never met these people, Moses and Elijah. He's never seen them face to face. They died hundreds of years before Peter was ever born, but now they appear with Jesus and he instantly recognizes them. That's the same thing that will happen in heaven. You'll know everybody. You will instantly recognize everybody and have the opportunity to talk with them because you have a physical body. They have a physical body. You're going to be able to connect physically with them face to face. And here's the best part. You will know their names. You're not going to have to think, gosh, what were their names? You're not going to have to stand next to your wife and say, tell me their name again. Dini just this morning told me that he forgot his neighbor's name last night. That isn't going to happen in heaven. You're going to remember everybody's name. You're going to know everybody. There's Moses. There's Peter. There's James. There's John. I want to go sit and talk with them. For me, I might find myself walking through the streets of, of the New Jerusalem and I'll see Billy Sunday and think, I've got to go talk to him. What a preacher he was. Or There's John Wesley. I want to go talk to him. I want to hear the stories of his life. Or I might even see Jim Coates, my seventh grade Sunday school teacher that died way too young, way too early. And I know he's in the presence of the Lord right now. There's Jim walking towards me. I want to sit and talk with Jim. I'll know who he is. I will recognize him because if Peter could recognize Moses and Elijah and he had never met them, how much easier is it going to be for us to recognize those that we did life with here? There are physical bodies in heaven. You'll have one. Everybody else will have one. And you will be able to connect that way. Back in Revelation chapter 21, we find that there's another restoration going on. Let me show it to you again. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you realize this? Part of the restoration is of the earth. God will restore the earth. He says, I am making, in, in verse 5, I am making all things new. One of the misconceptions is that God is making all new things in heaven. 
That is not the case. What the Bible teaches is that He is making all things new. He is restoring everything, including the heavens and the earth. The only thing that we can believe is that that restoration means that God is going to take everything back to its original design. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 teaches this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5 teaches that in the end, when God says the timing is perfect, according to Solomon, the timing is perfect, He will restore the earth to that original design. He will renew the earth. Pretty amazing to think about. It really will. There's a little excerpt out of Meriwether Lewis's journal that kind of illustrates what that will be like for us as we experience this restored earth. When Lewis and Clark were making their way across the United States, they recorded much of what they had seen. Just listen to this. Lewis writes, I ascended to the top of the cut bluff this morning, from whence I had the most delightful view of the country. Immense herds of buffalo, elk, deer, and antelope feeding in one common and boundless pasture. The buffalo, elk, and antelope are so gentle that we pass near them while feeding without appearing to excite any alarm among them. We attract their attention. They frequently approach us to more nearly discover what we are. The country is beautiful in the extreme. That's part of God's renewal. That, I believe, is exactly what it will be like. We'll be sneaking up to see the the creation as God originally intended it to be, and we won't want to leave it. And the next day, we'll be headed out someplace else to see creation as God originally intended it. Before sin ever touched the world, God restores it and renews the earth that we might experience it in its perfect form in God's design. That's pretty exciting stuff. Best part about it, when we decide to go climb a mountain because we're in glorified bodies, we'll have enough air. We won't have to worry about sucking wind as we get to the top. and The elk herds will stand right in front of us and... The pheasants will fly. Well, no, I won't even go there. It'd just be amazing. Because God restores and renews the earth to what He originally intended it to be. And He allows you to explore it. There is another misconception that makes its way through people's minds as they think about heaven. We read a few minutes ago about this place called the New Jerusalem. The streets of gold and the walls of amethyst and the the beautiful jewels that are everywhere and diamonds that line the the hallways and the walls of this place. And and we get in our minds that that's exactly what heaven is going to be like, what eternity is going to be like. And we think that John used this type of description because he didn't have any other words to describe what he saw. And, And that's not true at all. Remember that as we've approached the book of Revelation, we've said that we're coming at it from a literal point of view. And so when we come to the place in Revelation 21 where we start reading about the New Jerusalem, if we have applied a literal point of view in our entire study of this book, then we have to apply it here as well. And we have to accept that that's what this city is going to look like. It is going to be full of all of those jewels and those precious gems and the the streets are literally going to be pure gold and the walls will be made of diamonds and, and on and on and on. All of that list goes. But what you have to know is that that is not the restored earth. That is not the new heaven and the new earth. That is the new Jerusalem, the city of God. As it descends from heaven and comes to rest on this earth, it is the capital city of all of creation. It is the residence of God. There is no temple anyplace else because of this new city. 
which by the way exists today. That's where all believers go to be in the presence of the Lord. When a believer dies, the Bible teaches us that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. You're in the new Jerusalem. Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You have a room in the new Jerusalem. Mathematicians, people that are a lot smarter than I am, have done all of the figuring on this place. And what they have come to understand is that every believer, every person actually, if they all had a place in the new Jerusalem, would have a room that's about 75 acres all on its own. You have 75 acres, a room prepared for you by Jesus in this city, this new Jerusalem, and it will descend from heaven and come to rest on the new earth. But what you have to know is this. There are gates in that city, and they'll be opened. Let me show you. Revelation chapter 21, verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. Now skip over to verse 25 with me. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. There are gates in the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Now, there's curious stuff about it, by the way. They're made of, of one giant pearl, 12 gates, each side of the gate made of one giant pearl. Those same mathematicians, John Phillips teaches this, those same mathematicians figured out how big they are. They are 1,400 miles high. 1,400 miles high, made of a single pearl. So imagine each side of the, the gate swinging open, and each one of those gates is a 1,400-mile-high pearl placed there by God for a specific reason. Phillips would teach this. This is tremendous. He says that the gates are the only gems recorded in all of Revelation chapter 21 that come from a living being. Everything else is a rock or a mineral, but the pearls that form the gates, 1,400-mile-high pearls, come from a living being. You know how a pearl is formed? It is formed when an oyster is penetrated or wounded. The oyster inside the shell comes to surround that wound, and that forms the pearl. Philip says it's as if their answer to whatever it is that offended them is this beautiful pearl. He goes on to say that if that was true on this earth, how much more so in heaven? Imagine those gates, 1,400 miles high, made of a single pearl, and you have the ability to walk in and out of them to go explore the new heaven and the new earth. You can leave any one of the 12 of them, and every time you come past those gates, you're reminded of the pearl of great price. You're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Those pearls are symbolic of what he did for us. It is as if those pearls, those gates that open up all of the new heavens and the new earth to every one of us remind us every time we go past them of what Jesus did for us. His answer to sin was to surround that wound and make a great pearl. His answer to the sin that we committed, that put him on the cross, is to make that great pearl. The gates are there, open all the time. They will never close. We can go out to explore whatever we want and come back into this city with no fear. We don't ever have to worry about the gates closing because there's no sin anymore. This restored earth, this renewed earth, will never perish, spoil, or fade. And sin will never touch it. It will never begin to disintegrate. It will never change. It is the best of God's creation. It is the best everything that he ever designed, that's what we get to experience. Because when the time comes, the fullness of time comes, 
The Bible says he will make all things new. He will restore everything and give you access to it. This is how Peter sums that up. Book of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All of that is kept in heaven for you. That's what John was describing for us in Revelation chapter 21. All of it is there, and all of it is accessible through Jesus Christ for every person that would ever make him their Lord and Savior. It's pretty exciting, actually. When you stop and think about it, it's very exciting. There was a time not so long ago in history when people lived heavenward. They really did. In fact, just 150 years ago, when some of the great spirituals were being written, a number of them were about our hope in heaven and our desire to get there. Life wasn't great on this earth. People weren't longing to stay here, and especially those that were pinning the words of those spirituals. They wanted to get to glory land. They wanted to get into the presence of the Lord. They wanted to leave this earth behind and get to the place that God had promised them. And about 100 years ago, it began to shift. We went through the Industrial Revolution and the post-war era. People began to lose that heavenward thinking. They began to lose that desire to be in the presence of God and leave this world behind. That's where some of those new theologies came from. If there is no heaven, there's nothing that could beat this. Folks, there is. It's the best of this. It's the best of God's design. It is everything that He originally intended. Living heavenward helps us understand that. I've often been curious about the natural progressions that we go through in life. I wonder if they aren't somewhat tied to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 that we read right at the beginning. You remember what it was like when you were a little kid? Heaven was a pretty exciting thing. It really was because your parents told you it was going to be really cool and you wanted to be there and, and you understood unconditional love from Jesus Christ. As you began to grow a little bit, you started to think, well, I'm not so sure I want to go to heaven because there's all kinds of things that I want to experience on this earth. I've told you before that growing up in the church, there were times that I wasn't saying, come Lord Jesus, come, because I wanted to drive. I wanted my driver's license. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have children. I wanted to start a career. I wanted to get out of college. I wanted to do all these things. So I kept thinking, don't come yet, Lord. Don't come yet, Lord. And, and now all I can think is, come Lord Jesus, come. There's a natural progression we go through. As teenagers and young adults, you're immortal. You never think about what it could be like to have anything better because death is something that's just a foreign concept to you. As you get older and your body starts to wear out, you start to think, gosh, it'll be nice when I don't have this arthritis pain anymore. It'll be nice when it doesn't hurt or pop or creak anymore when I get up. And as you go through the stresses of life and the pains of life and you don't seem to be able to get past them here, think it's going to be wonderful when I get to leave those behind and go into heaven where there's no more crying or mourning or pain. 
when I don't have to deal with anything anymore. The old order of things has passed. It's somewhat illustrated to me by Tina's 99-year-old grandfather. Les McClintock is his name. Told you about him before. He's a wonderful man of God, just a wonderful man of God. Patriarch not only of a family, but a patriarch of a church. He has invested his life there. He uh, was a car salesman back in the 30s and 40s. And in fact, he did something that many of us have always longed to do. When he would take in cars on trade, and he thought they might appreciate value, he just went and parked them in a barn and left them there and, and kept them for years and years and years and years. He still has them, and, and now he's giving cars away to different family members. A few years ago, he gave Tina a 1924 Dodge sedan that he got in the 40s. He said, I want you to have this car. It was one of his parade cars. So he gave that to her without realizing we have no way to drive that to Montana. So she has a 1924 Dodge sedan that he took in 1941 on a trade for 75 bucks, parked it in a garage. When he gave it to her, we went, put a battery in it, fired right up and drove it out of there. Kind of cool. That's just the way he took care of things. And, and he had all these different cars that he's given to grandkids and his kids and so on. Then he, uh, he bought the gas company because he wanted to do something different with his life and he started building that and his family worked for him and then when he was in his 60s Les said you know I've always wanted to be a farmer so he started accumulating land and, and started farming when he was in his 60s and today at 99 if he could still go out and get on his tractor I think he would and he was an antique collector of collectors amazing thing he, he actually bought train depots and filled warehouses with antiques and and about 15 years ago, he gave them to the community that he lives in and says, I want you to open this place as a museum. And, and to walk through it, you could see all of the desires that had gone through Les's mind and his heart and his life. And today at 99, he doesn't really care much about antiques anymore. He doesn't care that much about farming anymore. And the gas company's a thing of the past. And cars are a thing of the past. He's buried most of his friends and people that he was close to. At 99 years old, he makes this statement on a regular basis. I think God has forgotten me. He just wants to go be with the Lord. He wants to go be reunited with his loved ones, his friends and family members that have gone on before him. You see, that desire that was placed deep inside of him through the natural progression of life has made its way to the top. All the other things that were desires and things that he anticipated, they don't matter anymore. The only thing that matters to him now is heaven. And that's where he's living. The natural progression of life causes that deep soul longing in us to come out. And it also causes us to understand that there is something much better waiting for us. Something much better. And it's available through Jesus Christ. We walk through gates made of pure pearl to get there. And that was God's answer to sin. Jesus Christ. Pretty cool the way it works. We're going to pick up and, and continue to study this next week. I hope you'll be back to hear more of what heaven will be like. And we'll also be in Sunday school teaching on it and answering some questions. But what you have to know is this. The way in is through Jesus. And that's it. And he paid the price to make that possible. He really did. I hope you keep that in mind. Why don't you stand? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, for whatever reason, in our society today, we don't spend much time thinking about what heaven's going to be like and what eternity in your presence will be like. And that's a shame because it is so exciting. It really is to think that we're going to leave a broken world behind and we're going to leave broken bodies behind and we're going to receive a new world with new bodies with which to explore it. That's exciting. And we're going to explore it with you. We're going to hear about what you were thinking when 
you designed certain places, when you created spots that are familiar to everybody and spots that are hidden. Lord, that'll be amazing, absolutely amazing. It's my prayer that you will create in each one of us not just a deep longing, but a deep desire that, that causes us to anticipate heaven. And would you let that be the message of our life, the hope of our life? And would you let it communicate your love for us? Father, help us share it with others. Help us communicate to them that our soul is safe with you and that we know that when this life is over, we will be in your presence. That's heaven for us. Lord, for Christians in this room, we know that that's heaven today, to be in your presence, to worship with you, to worship you, to let our eyes and our heart, our minds and our souls rest on you and all that you've done for us. Thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.